Thank you, Ashley, for uh, praying and reading scripture. Sorry I gave you the wrong passage, but you, you, like with aplomb, no big deal. You pivoted beautifully. Uh, Okay. We are looking together at uh, metaphors of the church. We've been doing that since, well, middle of September or so. And we've looked at how the church is like an embassy, how the church is like a flock, how the church is like a temple, how the church is like a family. Uh, One of the things uh, we have not talked about yet is how the church is described in the scriptures as a bride. That's what we're going to talk about this afternoon or this morning. And this is perhaps the most fascinating of all the metaphors of the church because in this metaphor, what God is telling us is he's saying that he wants to be in a relationship with his people that is, is so intimate and so personal, yet so permanent, so, so binding, so enduring that the only way you can understand it is through this, this analogy between a bride and a bridegroom, between a, a husband and a wife. God is saying that if you want to understand what I'm really like, you, won't, you actually won't be able to understand what I'm really like. You won't really be able to understand just how much you matter to me, just how, how much I'm, I'm, I'm for you and how much I delight in you and how much I care about you if you don't understand this metaphor. Because I'm not just your king, though I am your king. I'm not just your shepherd, though I am your shepherd. And I'm not just your father, though I am your father. I am your husband. There's a couple of places in the Old Testament that describe this beautifully. For example, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, it says this, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And then a little further, in Isaiah chapter 62, Verse what? Verse 5, it says this. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This, this is how the Old Testament describes God's relationship with his people. And it's absolutely unbelievable. In fact, It's not just the Old Testament that does that. The New Testament does this as well. Jesus is described as the bridegroom who has come into this world to find his bride. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century theologian, American theologian, he said that you can actually understand the entire Bible from this perspective of God sending his son into the world to seek a bride that he can enjoy for all eternity and the Holy Spirit is kind of like the matchmaker. And the text that we just read is, is the end of the story. This is, this is where this story of Jesus looking for his bride ends up. This wedding feast of Jesus and his bride, the church, you and me. So what we're going to do is we're going to think about this theme a little bit and this metaphor and unpack it and think about what the implications are of it. But first of all, I want to say two very quick, hopefully, introductory things on this. And the first one is this. This metaphor leads me to believe that the Christian faith has to be true. 
Maybe you say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, let me explain myself. Who would ever, if they were inventing a religion, who would ever think that the way God, the, the divine, the creator would relate to the creature, the way the, the infinite would relate to the finite, the way that the, the eternal would be in relationship with the temporal, the way that the ideal would be in relationship with the real, would be through this relationship. It's only Christianity that has the audacity to say that God loves you and me so much that he describes his love for us as, the, as that of a bridegroom who delights in his bride. Now, no other religion in the world says anything like that. And many religions in the world actually say that that's ridiculous. That, that if God is truly going to be this transcendent, high, infinite being, this, this all soul or whatever, there's no way that you and I could have that kind of an intimacy of a relationship with him. It leads me to believe that this couldn't have been made up. That's one thing. The second thing is, is all you guys sitting in this room or in the overflow or wherever you are who are thinking, this is weird. I'm a bride. I don't get that. It makes me uncomfortable. All I can say to you is suck it up. Because listen, in Galatians chapter 4, God tells all the women who are in relationship with God, who are Christians, he calls them sons of God. And they've got to figure that out too. And besides, you think it's harder to think of yourself in relationship with God as a bride than it is to think of yourself as a sheep or as a stone? All right, that's it. Those are my two introductory remarks. Now we're going to look at this uh, metaphor together. What does it mean? What does it mean that, that God relates to us the way a bridegroom re relates to a bride? Well, it, first of all, it means this. You are chosen. In the ancient Near East, weddings were arranged. Marriages were arranged. There was no playing the field, no swiping right, you know, no speed dating venues or anything like that. Weddings, marriages were strategic. Oftentimes they were for financial reasons or for socio-political reasons or whatever. But the point is, is that a bride was chosen specifically for a groom. Now, if you are a Christian, and every Sunday I want to remind you what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who came into this world to live the life that you should have lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, and died the death that you should have died for your rebellion against that perfect obedience and rebellion against that Father, that's a Christian. If you are a Christian, you're chosen. Your relationship with Him was started by Him, not by you. He initiated the relationship. You didn't choose God, God chose you. Jesus says this himself in John chapter 15. He says this. Where does he say it? He says, oh yeah, he says, I did not, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear much fruit. Jesus himself tells us that, that our relationship with him is something that he initiated. Now here's the thing. If you're not sitting here blown away in awe and wonder if you're not just over 
blown, over, overwhelmed by this idea. It means you don't really understand the significance of this. And that's okay. Let me try to help you understand it. Let me flip the metaphor upside down for a second. Probably most of the men in this church, who are married anyway, have to admit that they married up. Right, guys? You're willing to admit that, aren't you? Your wife is a better person than you, probably. I know mine is. Much better person. They are kinder. They are gentler. They are more patient. They are more understanding. Nine times out of ten, they're much, much better looking than you. And when you're thinking straight and you're reflecting on that relationship that you have, do you not just say to yourself, how in the world did I score this woman? How did I get so lucky? How, out of all the guys she could have chosen as her husband, she chose me. How in the world is that possible? And you you think to yourself, it's really ultimately a mystery. It's not because I'm awesomer. It's not because I'm more fit. It's not because I'm smarter. There's always someone awesomer. There's always someone smarter. There's always someone more fit. The older I get and the more young men that walk into this church, the more I realize there's always someone more fit. It's a mystery. Now think about this. Think about Jesus. Think about his character. How he is all wise and yet... He is so humble. How he is all powerful and yet he is so gentle. How he is so firm and courageous and yet he is so kind. He's the perfect man. He's the perfect man. And not only that, he's God in the flesh. And not only that, he doesn't love his bride to the point of just telling her, I love you and I'm seeking you out and I'm making you mine. No, he sacrificed himself for her. That's what what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about relationships between husbands and wives. He said, husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loved the church and what? And gave himself up for her. He chose you. He chose you. Not because you're lovely, because frankly, you weren't. The Bible says you're not. The Bible says I'm not. And yet, out of all those people he could have chosen, the people that you know in your lives, you know people who are not Christians. And I know people who are not Christians who are better people than you, don't you? They volunteer their time more. They are kind and gentle. They're really uh, thoughtful neighbors. They, they are colleagues at work who are so conscientious all the time. They're not a believer in, the, in, 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 in anything maybe. And you realize that at least morally speaking, they're a much, much better person than you. And yet God chose you. It's a little bit like, you know, Justin Bieber when he, I don't know, is he still popular? Yeah, he's still popular. Okay, so and he, he had this thing going on where he would sing a song called One Less Lonely Girl at his concerts. And these concerts, like they're seas of preteens, right? Like who else goes to Justin Bieber? If you're not a preteen and you've been, don't feel like I'm slamming you, just a little bit. Uh, it's a sea of preteen girls. And what he does is, is he picks one girl out of this sea, thousands, 20,000, 50,000 girls, and he picks one girl and he says, you come up here and he sets her on a chair and he sings this song, One Less Lonely Girl, to her directly. 
and she feels like a princess. Or if you're from my generation, you'll remember uh, there's that, that video from Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen uh, dancing in the dark, and he's playing his concert, and then he points to Courtney Cox, and he says, you, come up here. And he actually does it like that. You, come up here. And she's like, oh. She comes up, and he's, he dances with her and only her in a concert of like 80,000 people. Now that one's staged, so it's not nearly as good, but if you've ever watched a YouTube video of Justin Bieber singing Just One Less Lonely Girl to a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or whatever she is, she just melts, like she's just shaking. She's so overwhelmed. That should humble us, okay? Some of you need to be humbled by hearing this, that you have been chosen because you've got it in your head that you're a pretty good person, that you know, you do mostly the right things, that you, you find it actually hard to believe underneath it all. You would never say this at a party. But when you're sitting by yourself and you're thinking about the sermon on Sunday or, 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 or you just did something good for a neighbor or you just filed your taxes and you claimed every piece of income you could think of, you say to yourself, really, underneath it all, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. No, you're not. No, you're not. You should be humbled by this. If you were open and honest about what's really going on inside you, the kind of person that, that you really were, you should be humbled by the fact that, that Jesus was willing to come and seek you out and make you his bride. And for many of us, what it should do is it should elevate you. Because I know in a lot of churches, there are people sitting in pews time and time again who are absolutely weighed down by their sinfulness. They don't really need to be convinced all that much about their sin. They know that they're sinners. They feel guilty about it all the time. They wake up on Monday saying, nope, I'm not going to do it this time. But three hours later or three days later or maybe three weeks later, bam, it happens again. And they fall on their bed at night reflecting on it and they think to themselves, how in the world could God love me? How in the world could God put up with this again? Isn't he sick and tired of me? I know I'd kick myself to the curb by now if I could, but he's still here. That just can't be true. And the truth is, it is true. It is true because it wasn't because you were lovely. It wasn't because you were good. It wasn't because you were, were worthy that he chose you. He chose you out of his mystery, mysterious love. That's what it means. That's what this metaphor tells us. It tells us that and then it also tells us not only are you chosen, but you are secure. Now in the ancient Near East, when you were betrothed, when you got engaged, you were basically married. You weren't living in the same house and you weren't doing all the things that husbands and wives do yet, but it was like you were married. Remember Joseph and Mary? Remember Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant and he's like, I gotta break off the uh, relationship. Well, they were betrothed, not quite married. But today, too, even though engagements are different today, today, too, we, we kind of think about engagements in a very similar way. We think, we hear stories of engagements being broken off, like the wedding's off, and it causes a huge scandal, right? Because we still believe that once you're engaged, things are pretty much locked in. And we still believe that marriages ought to be permanent. We believe that divorce is a tragedy. I know that there are hip-hop happening, sophisticated New York Times columnists who try to write stories about how actually divorce can be freeing and, and, and empowering and all that kind of stuff. But we know, different, deep down, that divorce is a tragedy. 
Because marriage is supposed to be binding, right? It's supposed to be permanent. It's what's called a covenant. Now, a covenant is a fascinating relationship. A covenant is this wonderful mixture of law and love. It's this wonderful mixture of law and love. You see, marriages are more binding and permanent than friendship, right? Because of friendship, you, you, know, you, you get along and you have similar interests and all that kind of stuff, but things can go south and you can go sideways and they can get out the door. Nothing requiring them to remain in the relationship, but they're far more, they're far more uh, loving than a business relationship. You know, in a business relationship, you may have contract with someone and, and uh, you know, you promise to do certain services or whatever, but you're not, you're not personally related to one another in any way. But in a marriage, you have both law and love. And Jesus is the perfect groom. He's the perfect bridegroom. And he is utterly and totally and completely committed to you. There's a place in 2 Timothy where it says this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Do you hear that? He cannot disown himself. Boy, I want to go on a long time about that. I'm not going to, but I am going to say this. Jesus' faithfulness to his church is not dependent upon the church. It's not your faithfulness, it's not your ability to keep the, the relationship going, it's not your ability to keep your end of the bargain that makes sure that Jesus is faithful with you. No, Jesus is faithful with you because he cannot deny himself. Think about this. When you go to court, you have to swear on a Bible or something. You say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we say swear on the Bible. Why? Because we're swearing, in a sense, on, our, on God, on the infinite, on, some, on, the, on the greatest conceivable being. Well, is there a greater conceivable being for Jesus than himself? No! And when he committed to you and he vowed himself to you and he said, I am with this person and I am holding on to this person, he could not deny himself. He made that vow to himself. And so you are utterly, 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 utterly secure. I say this all the time. But you think God loves you more when you're doing well. We all think God loves us more when we're doing well. But the reality is, is that he loves us the same right now as he will a billion years from now when you have been completely free of all sin for billions and billions of eons. Got to move on. Third thing, what else does this uh, metaphor tell us? Well, it tells us, look, it's, the bride and the bridegroom is, it's the time of engagement. And what do you do during an engagement? Wedding's coming up, you prepare, right? Talk to any bride and she'll tell you, man, there are so many things to do in preparation for the wedding. And we're finally going to look at our text where it says in verses 7 and 8 that, that that's precisely what was happening with us. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. 
Jesus wants a spotless bride, a perfect bride. At, at a wedding, when you go to a wedding, what is everybody waiting to see? We're all waiting to see the bride in the dress. We want to see how she looks in that dress. And the Bible says that, 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 that on our wedding day, we will be in that dress, in a sense. We will be clothed with righteousness. We will be pure. All the sinful things in us will be, will be burned away, will be taken away. Because you see, in that dress, every bride, this is the thing, on their wedding day, every bride looks stunning. And let's face it, some of us are more naturally physically stunning than others of us, but every bride on their wedding day looks absolutely gorgeous. You know, the, the makeup is perfect and there's not a single hair out of place. And the dress fits like no dress they've ever had before because they went for 11 fittings before the wedding day. We're in that time right now. We're in that time where we are being made ready. You see, Jesus is making us ready. If you turn, if you have a Bible and you want to look, turn in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to mention this a little longer than the other passages, so I'm bringing it up. It says in verse 25, 26, and 27 this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. This is what Jesus is doing with his church right now. He's preparing us for the wedding day. He's cleansing us, it says, by the washing of water with the word. He's making us holy. See, understand something. To be a Christian is not to go from being bad to being good. A lot of people make that mistake. They think that when they become a Christian, they say, well, now I'm, I'm a good person. I was a bad person, but now I'm a good person. No, 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 no. What you were was you were a dead person, and now you're a live person. That's what happens when you become a Christian. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, it says that you, you go from darkness to light. You go from blindness to seeing. You go from spiritual death, not caring a whit for the things of God, to spiritual life. Now those things matter to you. Becoming a Christian is not a moral change. But it leads to moral change. Jesus rescued you from what? Your sin because you're a sinner, because you are a rebel to his grace and his love. But Jesus, when he gets a hold of you, what he does is he washes you clean of that. And he does it in two ways. He, first of all, he, he confronts you about the things in your life that need to go. So he says, for example, in, in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, he says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus wants his bride at the wedding feast. He will not allow us to continue to live in these things because he wants us to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he works on removing these from us. But not only that, 
by the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to bear fruit. Now, this is a beautiful image. I, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but this is a beautiful image. If the relationship between God and us is like a marriage, marriages are brought together to bear fruit. One of the purposes of marriage is to bear fruit. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. And when you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, he will bear fruit in you. What are, what's the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and goodness. I missed goodness. We should expect that. So Jesus is making us ready and we're also making ourselves ready because that's what it says in verse 8. It's very interesting. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear... Oh, no, sorry, the bride, and his bride, sorry, verse 7, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, this is not the righteousness, okay, I'm screwing that up, let me try again. It says in verse 7, the bride has made herself ready. Well, how has the bride made herself ready? That's what verse 8 talks about. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now, this is not the righteousness of Jesus that is imputed to a believer when they come by faith. No, these are the the good works that a Christian does in response to the love that God shows to us in Jesus Christ. And think about, what is a bride on her wedding day, I hope, on her wedding day, she's preparing herself for her groom. She's not preparing herself for her father who's going to walk her down the aisle. She's not preparing herself for all the friends who, yes, do want to see the dress, etc. Who does she want to be beautiful for? The one she delights in. The one she's preparing for. The one who she's going to spend the rest of her life with. She's preparing herself for her groom. And so we adorn ourselves in this life with good works. God says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared for us in advance to do. And the result of that, friends, the result is what verses 7 and 8 describes, this wedding feast, meaning the future is worth it. Getting ready for a wedding is hard, hey? It is. I, I know when Jess and I got married, so Jess and I dated two years and then we were engaged for a year. We had a long engagement. Might have been a bad move. Don't know for sure. But it might have been a bad move because it just allows more time for you to argue. Are we going to do this? Are we going to invite him? Well, he's your weird uncle. But yeah, but he's weird. I know, but he's got to come because he's my uncle. But ah, but he's so weird. And that means I can't sit, bring my cousin. Well, yeah, but your cousin, we hardly ever see your cousin. You know what I'm saying? And so Jess and I, I think we probably had more arguments in the year of our engagement than we did in the two years of dating prior to our engagement because it's hard. And life, this life is stressful. It, there is pressure. In fact, I've, I've even heard that COVID has sort of pushed the trend towards smaller weddings because people had to have smaller weddings and then they discovered, oh boy, stress-free uh, engagement and wedding prep and now we're going to have slow, uh, I doubt it's going to last I think people are going to ramp it up again in a couple of months ask Mike and Kate maybe they know better about this anyway but my point is this it's stressful and it's hard and the cleansing and the washing is sometimes very very painful because you're not a beautiful bride going into this bubble bath you are a bride that has been beat up and cut and scraped and wounded and when you slip into a bubble bath like that it stings but it's worth it. 
but it's worth it. The joy on the wedding day. As a minister, a privilege that I have is that I get to be right beside the groom when the bride comes in, and it's pretty awesome to watch all these guys get all choked up. As soon as they see her walk through the door, they're just like... It's great. How much more will your Savior Jesus rejoice over you on that wedding day? This means, friends, that all the best marriages in history are nothing like what awaits us. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he puts it this way. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world are what we now call physical pleasures. So what he's saying is, is that God created the world embedded with all these pleasures for us to discover. And in this physical world, we get to enjoy so many of those pleasures, of course. And even thus filtered, they're filtered, they are too much for our present management. In other words, it's filtered by our sinful natures, it's filtered by the physical realm, it's a little philosophical, but, but the fact that we are, in, we are physical beings, it's so, so these pleasures are filtered, we're not getting the pure uh, joy that, that they actually contain. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? You, you go up to a stream and you drink the, the incredible clear cold water and he says, what would be even better is if you went all the way up to the, where that water started from and squirted out of, the, of a spring and drink from there. How pure and how glorious would it be? And yet, yet that, I, yet that is, yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. As St. Augustine said, the rapture of the saved soul will flow over into the glorified body. We cannot imagine such joy, and I warn everyone most seriously not to try. Basically what he's saying is this, the joy that awaits you and me when we are finally presented as the perfectly holy brides that, that Jesus has been working on all our lives and we see him with our eyes unveiled and we see him as he truly is, that joy then will be so powerful and so pure and so undiluted that if you were to get a taste of it now, you'd probably die. There's no drug like it. One last thing, for all you single people out there, sometimes it can be pretty, pretty hard to be in church. Churches are typically very family-oriented places, and understandably so, the vast majority of people get married and they start families, and that's how life tends to go for many, many people, but in churches, sometimes that gets celebrated to the point where you think that if you're a single person, you're like, I'm out of the game here, I don't, I'm not part of the team, I, I'm on the fringes of the community because I'm single. Well, listen, even the very best marriages on this planet pale in comparison to the wedding that we all are going to experience. And if you are single and you wish that you were married and you wonder if it will ever happen to you in this life, I can promise you that it will happen. 
and it will be greater than any marriage that has ever been lived on this side of glory. See, it relativizes marriage. And all of those of you who are married, and maybe you're in a bad marriage, maybe you think, my marriage isn't giving me the stuff that I thought it would give me, would you give your head a shake and realize that your marriage was never meant to be your salvation ever It was only meant to be a taste that points you, an hors d'oeuvre that points you to the feast of the Savior that you will one day experience. Give your head a shake. Don't put that pressure on your spouse. You'll destroy them. I'm not sure I understand. Well, tough noogies. Listen later. Watch the video. What I'm trying to say, friends, is, is that single or married your life can be fulfilling and joy-filled on this side of heaven. It can be. Don't think it can't be. And the promise is, is that your life will be, you will be lost in wonder, love, and praise beyond your wildest imaginings for all eternity. That's the promise of of the bride and the bridegroom. That's the promise of our bridegroom. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for Thank you for our bridegroom. Thank you for our Lord who we love. We are so sorry that we are poor brides. Give us a renewed vision and a renewed excitement at the prospect of presenting ourselves to him at the last day, pure and holy and spotless and do that work in us so that we may celebrate forever and ever with our our groom the goodness that he has worked in us. By his grace, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.